Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to tonight's edition of Students for a Better Future Radio. I'm your host, Doreen Sankle, and we are live. In the 1960s, Bernadine Dorn was one of the leaders of the violent radical group known as the Weathermen. On December 3, 1980, in Chicago, Bernadine Dorn surrendered after 10 years in hiding. With her was another Weatherman, Bill Ayers, with whom she had been living. They held a press conference and stated their continued commitment to radical change. Resistance by every means necessary is happening and will continue to happen within the United States as well as around the world. And I remain committed to the struggle ahead. The man with Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, was one of the key members of the Weathermen during the 1960s. A man who knew Ayers well during those years was Larry Grathwall, a former member of the Weather Underground, which had developed close ties with the Cubans. Well... When, when the Cubans viewed the, the revolutionary struggle in the United States, they recognized the fact that the, that the left as it existed in 69 and 70 was not capable of, of overthrowing the government by itself. Consequently, they, they had hoped that the, that the group itself would be able to, to attack the system from within and provide assistance to the international movement, the international communist revolution. As a weatherman, if I became cut off from the main body of the, of the organization, the Weather Underground organization, I could make contact or reestablish contact by going to the Cuban embassy in Mexico or Canada and asking to, as an example, I wanted to get in touch with Bernadine Delgado. That was the code word, Delgado. And I would tell them that I'm Larry Delgado and I can be reached at such and such a phone number or at such and such an address. And the Cubans would make the connection and put me back in contact with the... How do you know this? I don't... How do you know... How do you know this information? Oh, Bill Ayers gave me those instructions in... It was either February or March of 1970 in Detroit. And folks, welcome to our show tonight. Cisco... Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too, Doreen. How's New Jersey treating you? I don't know if it's so happy over here. You know, um, 
before we get into our topic tonight, I do want to briefly mention some things. First, the show is sponsored by studentsforbetterfuture.com. You can go there, and and um, we're actually doing some good things with internships. And by the way, it's Human Trafficking Month as well. Uh, um, so, you, you know, you, you can see a list of events um, with regards to human trafficking and how to stop it. And Cisco, tell me what's going on in New Jersey. New Jersey just got a happy New Year present. Governor, newly elected <laughs> governor, newly elected governor Bill Murphy is giving the taxpayers of New Jersey something to think about and something that is going to come out of their pockets this year. Higher taxes. And for what reason? To take care of about 640,000 illegal aliens. They're going to be feeding them. They're going to be taking care of them in all possible ways, plus free college. So that's, that's, that's really heartbreaking news. And if I was living in New Jersey, which I lived for almost 20 years, I would be start. I, I would start thinking about packing my bags because New Jersey is heading towards being in the second California. They're in that, that path. I mean, I think Phil Murphy's uh, his idol, his mentor is Jerry Moonbeam Brown. So um, that's right. I, I, I send my but condolences to, degree, to you, Doreen, and to every. But, but to right, but to a degree, isn't it the voters' fault? Right, but it is. It is the voters' fault, but the demographics in New Jersey are changing just like they have in California. You know, uh, I believe Mr. Murphy is going to make New Jersey a sanctuary state. Just like California is. Just like California is. So I don't see a bright future living in New Jersey. I don't see a bright future for businesses that are headquartered in New Jersey. Um, Mr. Murphy is just going to really, really destroy. It will become, I hate to say it, part of the shithole democratic communities. So almost like a third world nation. That's what they want. That's what they, that's the direction that they want to take uh, New Jersey. And uh, as long as the the voters in New Jersey are don't wake up, they'll continue to, on to the path of socialist socialist New Jersey. We have already socialist California. We have socialist New York. Now New Jersey. Wow. Uh, uh, all right. Well, we're going to do more on that um, coming up in the future. Um, but yeah. I do want to get into tonight's topic a little bit. Um, we've all heard of the group called the Weather Underground. Yeah. Um, let me explain what that is. Okay, it's actually the radical, um, the radical part of the group called Students for a Democratic Society. That's the SDS, and. Um, it was a student. It, it is a student activist movement. 
in the United States that was one of the main representations of the new left. Well, back in the 60s, it was called the new left. In today's time, the new left has actually become mainstream. The organization it developed and expanded rapidly, rapidly in the 1960s, and then um, and they, they expanded to over 300 chapters. And um, it was founded in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, it, it was totally left-wing, totally responsible for all the uprisings on the, the campuses. And um, we're going to hear from Lindsay Grantwall. She is the daughter of former federal agent Larry Grantwall, who had infiltrated the SDS um, the, uh, at the time, I'm, I'm sorry, the Weather Underground at the time, and mm-hmm. and actually, uh, I listened to one of his pieces here, and it said that, quote unquote, I brought up the subject of what's going to happen after we take over the government. You know, we need become responsible then for administering, you know, 250 million people, and there were no answers. No one had given any thought to economics and how you're going to clothe and feed these people. The only thing that I could get was that they expected that the Cubans and the North Vietnamese and the Chinese and the Russians would all want to occupy different portions of the United States. They also believed that their immediate responsibility would be be able to protect against what they called the counter-revolution. And they felt that this counter-revolution could best be guarded against by creating and establishing re-education centers in the Southwest where we could take all of the people who needed to be re-educated into the new way of thinking and teach them how things were going to be. Then I asked, well, what's going to happen to those people that we can't re-educate and that are diehard capitalists? And the reply was, they'd have to be eliminated. And when I pursued this further, they estimated that they would have to eliminate 25 million people in these re-education centers. And, and we're going to leave it at the end of the quote there because I do want to bring on um, his daughter, Lindsay. Um, Lindsay, are you there? Yeah, hi. Can you hear me? Hi, yeah, Welcome hey, to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. What was um, that? Can you tell us uh, what you do and and give us a little background? Well, I I mean, I'm just a regular, I mean, I, I work on basic Monday through Friday job. I work in insurance, but on the side, I guess you could say I'm an activist. Um, yes. <laughs> a huge activist. But, yeah, I organize um, rallies, and I attend rallies here, and I live, in the uh, hornet's nest, I like to call it, um, which is the San Francisco Bay Area here in California. So, um, so yeah, that's pretty much what I do. Um, my dad was Larry Grasswell. Most people know, they know my dad more than they know me because he, he did a lot. And he, as, as you, as you see, I was listening to the beginning of the yeah. show and, and all, everything, um, you know, his words and, I've heard them so many times. You can only imagine. Um, so, anything you want to know, well, he, you he, can he ask. actually, yeah, he, he infiltrated one of the worst, ter- almost terrorist groups, domestic terrorist group. 
uh, in the United States because the weather underground, they were bombing people, I mean, bombing bombing police stations and and whatnot. Yeah. And And that was putting a lot of fear. One of the things that people, um, a lot of people don't know is, well, I mean, unless you've read my dad's book or you've talked to my dad, um, is that one of the reasons that the weathermen recruited my dad was because of the fact that my dad was a Vietnam veteran. And so he had, my dad had knowledge with explosives, right, with being in Vietnam. And so that was a big plus to the weathermen. They, they liked that. Also, the fact that my dad wasn't white collar, he came from a blue collar family. They wanted that. My dad was, I guess, the token so to speak, in their little group, because the majority of their group came from upper, you know, rich, white families. Yeah, uh, I, right. I, I think one of, the, one of the things, and we've had this discussion in the past, uh, Lindsay, is that what you're doing today mm-hmm. is basically you're just following, continuing his legacy because you are a, a determined as your father was, in, 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 in pursuing, you know, justice and also love of country. And I think that you have demonstrated that based on getting to know you. What do you see in the, in, in the differences or the differences between that era of your father and the current era that you're, you're facing the Antifa and, and the BLMs, and he was facing the weather on that. What's the correlation? What's how do you do you see if there's any? You know, what do you is there anything similar or not similar oh. or totally? Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons why I couldn't. I mean, I I just I had to get out and start doing what I'm doing because I saw such similarities, but. I will tell you one of the things that I've seen being out there and being, you know, having it in my face, you know, Antifa and BAM and BLM and and all these groups is that, in my opinion, and and I I wish that my dad was alive because I really would love to have his take on what's going on right now in this moment. But in my opinion, I think that it's worse because we, we have generations of these kids that have been indoctrinated and I, I see it on the streets. I mean, a lot of them really have no, they have no clue of why they're out there, except for they're just out there to cause, to cause, you know, uh, punch Nazis and to cause riots. I mean, when you ask them questions, like serious, hardcore questions, you know, why is President Trump racist? You know, tell me why. Why do you think that? They cannot give you an answer. They, they simply, they... They chant at you, and I call them zombies because a lot of them, I mean, they, it's really like talking to a zombie. Um, and I, I think that we've, unfortunately, you know, my dad, what he did, I mean, and, and what many of the, the FBI did back then, trying to bring down the weathermen and trying to, you know, put a, a complete stop to what they were doing, unfortunately, they weren't able to stop them because what they did was is they inched their way in behind the scenes and they got into our education system. And now we have, I think, a lot of zombies. I mean, that's what I call them. I know that that may right. not be a very nice term. Right. But, I mean, 
And I do want to, to mention, um, yeah, but I do want to mention that Bernadine Dorn uh, is actually a professor um, in Northwestern University. Um, yes. And yes. Bill Ayers is also a professor of education. And also what they do, what professors in higher ed do, is actually write curriculum, particularly for the mm-hmm. lower grades. Yep. So, so now Absolutely. you have them in the education, and, you know, you have what I call fake education now. You know, you have fake mm-hmm. media, and then you have fake education right now. Yep. Um, but, but I wanted to ask you, Bernadine Dorn, because she she really uh, is kind of like my opposite, and I had wondered why she wasn't in jail, because she actually, they actually put a bomb in in the San Francisco police headquarters, yes. and um, it, expo- it exploded, and the fellow he didn't die right there. He died several no. days later in the hospital. Yes, yes. In fact, it you know you bringing that up. I actually had just two days ago. I had dinner with one of the the, the first police sergeants on the scene of that crime that night. Um, his name is Jim Para. I've I've become very close friends with that family. Um, we met them about ten years ago at a at an event that we were protesting, so we were speaking at. Um, but um, yes, he he survived for a few days. He died because there was um, the shrapnel in the bomb that was placed there had fence staples in them, and the fence staple lodged in his brain. So he lived for a few days, and then he passed away. And nobody's ever been brought to charges for that because there were, as far from what I from what I can remember, from what my father told me, my father was one of like four people that knew that, that knew what had happened and that had that story that could testify. And my father testified before the Senate about that, but the other people that and my dad, I believe, wrote about it in his book or wrote about it in his updated version of his book. Um, but those other people that knew about it or had information about it all mysteriously either passed away or, you know, something had happened to them. So my father was the last one who was alive who could actually testify that he knew, you know, that he was given information that he, he had that. Um, but, and San Francisco actually um, about eight years ago, they had reopened, they had uh, created a task force, and they were going to reopen that case. And my dad was involved along with a few retired FBI agents. But then all of a sudden, without any warning, it was the, it, it was like they pulled the plug. Like my dad stopped getting any communication, and it was like they just said, oh, it's done, you know. And that was when Obama was still in office. So we weren't surprised that that got shut down. But it's so, still, I mean, there's no, there's no statute of limitations. She should have lived in, in there for manslaughter. Um, absolutely. Uh, my but, issue. you know, yeah. The, the FBI did make some, some mistakes with wiretapping, and there were illegal wiretaps, and, and so there were certain evidence and things that couldn't be used, and that was the technicalities that the weathermen got off on. That That's pretty much what happened. Um, and Bill Ayers, you know, he'll get up there and talk about how basically he's guilty, you know, but he's free as a bird. I mean, he said it, 
and um, his wife, my dad said in particular that if he was afraid of any of the weathermen, it was Bernadine Dorn that was the scariest one out of all of them um, because she was the one who had no problem, you know, following through with, with doing stuff. Bill Ayers liked to give orders, but Bernadine Dorn had no problem going through with, with the orders that she gave. So, as we have spoken in the past, uh, there's, there's a feeling. There's no proof, but there's a certain feeling that Bill Ayers has some indirect or direct involvement with Antifa. Mm-hmm. I know you have mentioned that his son is a teacher in that area. So yes, he has pretty much, he, yes. he has pretty, in your opinion, he has a lot of influence in that area. He's looked upon as a hero in that, in, in the Berkeley, in the Bay Area. Would I be, oh, absolutely. would that be, yeah. That, that would, would be, be an precise? understatement. That would be, I mean, his son teaches in the school district that my kids would have, I mean, I have my kids in private school for this particular reason, because otherwise my kids would be in the same school district as Belair's son, who's a prestigious teacher here in the Bay Area. He's looked upon, but he doesn't go by the name Ayers. He goes by the last name of Dorn. Um, Malik Dorn is his name. And um, so, and Bill Ayers is in the Bay Area very, very often because he does book readings at Revolution Books, which is the communist bookstore that's up on Telegraph that um, is trying to get restraining orders against us because they don't want us walking, you know, in front of their bookstores with American flags. Um, it, it, it's it, it, Bill Ayers spends a lot of time in the Bay Area, um, and there's also been uh, there's also uh, an article that was written back in April, right around the it was right after the March 4th, you know, the, the riots that happened in Berkeley. And um, there was an article that was written that stated that Bill Ayers was here in the Bay Area and that he was helping um, not, it, it was Refuse Fascism, refusefascism.org. He was helping them make signs for the protest. So, um, you know, and I know he likes to get his hand, I know he likes to, he, he likes to, I wouldn't be surprised if he's out here, you know, during some of these events. Um you know, I mean, because it gets pretty dirty in Berkeley. I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen it on the news. Um, we, we've we had some pretty big rioting in Berkeley with these domestic terrorist groups. Wow. You know, it's a shame. It's like they never stop. And, and, and also, um, Ch- Chessa Bowden, okay, he, he is actually the son of, of um, excuse me, Kathy Bowden, okay, Yes, she uh, he was suppo- supposedly he was r- raised by Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn. Um, yeah, uh, but they sent him off to Venezuela mm-hmm. to uh, participate in the revolution in Venezuela. Unbelievable, huh? Yeah, I mean, and I have the unbelie- background I mean, information. We're talking about it. To me, it's unbelievable. It's like, you know, the stuff is really going on, and nobody, you know, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, to, also, just- uh, in my research on this, uh, see, I, I had actually studied this group to learn how to put together 
students for a better future, which is is in a different direction than than the weather underground and all that. And um, right. I, I learned that they got their funding f- from uh, Cuba, the DGI in Cuba. Mm. That's the direction into intelligence. And yeah. um, in my research, that the um, it's it's almost like the uh, CIA or whatever over here, but that the the DGI had seven departments, and uh, I believe it was the seventh one that dealt with the um, dealt with action in North America, particularly the United States, and, and staging things and whatever. And I, I also learned that in the 60s, the students actually went from, from America, they went over to Cuba to see the revolution taking place. And then the, the Cuban DGI, they had uh, people who were t- um, tourist agents and, you know, whatever, in contact with the students. And um, t- these tourist agents would feel the student out and that's how they would recruit. And they they trained and, um, and, and yeah. And my dad, right? And, them, I mean, they were they all would go over there in like little groups. My dad would say, in like you know small groups um, together and train and spend time and and learn from them. Right. But uh, I wonder. If Antifa had something like that set up, from what I, I mean, we have, we have some people that you know have done a lot of digging, and then I know some people that have, you know, that have infiltrated the groups, and you know, have since been kind of booted out. Excuse me, um, but so I, I know a little bit, and, and from what I'm hearing, just from the intelligence that I've gotten. Excuse me, I got a cold. Um, is that yes, they are, and so I also got information, and I don't know, you know, how true it is, but I'll just tell you, just from being, you know, on the ground and and being there that day and seeing what I did, um, that on August twenty seventh in Berkeley, when um, I mean it was it was a crazy day that day. There were there were people there that you know I had heard that were literally sent in from other countries, and I will tell you that there were definitely people there that were in the streets that were definitely only there for one reason and one reason only, and that was to 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 beat people up and and um, it it I mean I I watched people get beat down that day and you know by the grace of God you know some people like I mean there was there's video and, and I I witnessed it where a reporter jumped on another guy you know to save them from getting beaten down um, I mean they were just all out they didn't care who you were that day if you you know. <laughs> weren't one of them, you were going to get beat down. And um, unfortunately, the cops didn't do much of anything. So, um, it, it, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and I know people that do a lot of research on it, and from what I'm hearing, yes, they're getting, people are getting trained that way. But 
But when you see some of these people, you know, out on the street, a lot of them, the majority of them are, you know, young kids, um, especially here in the Bay Area where I live. There's a group that's really, really prevalent up here. It's called BAM, which is by any means necessary, which is, I mean, all these groups are pretty much the same thing. They all work together. But BAM tends to be more of a younger group. You know, they honestly, a lot of the kids in that group, to me, look like they could be high school, you know, maybe maybe 18, 19 years old, um, a younger group as opposed to, um, some of the Antifa crowd, which is more, you know, like, you know, 20s, you know, mid-20s. Uh, but but it's funny because most of them are white. I mean, the majority of them are white. I mean, except for the BLM, the majority of these little groups are mostly white kids. Yeah, uh, that that seems to be the pattern. Um, but I, 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 had, I, I had a question. I know we... Like it's like Doreen, uh, we we've spoken quite a bit regarding this. Uh, Antifa mm-hmm. has been pretty quiet lately. I yeah. know that there, I know that you've you've attended the Case Stanley um, Memorial protest that was in San Francisco for the young lady who was who was killed by by the uh, illegal alien. Yeah, I, um, I organized that. Yeah, yeah you, you, I organized you've been, that. Well, you organized that and you've been attending. It yeah, appears to me. Yeah, you, hmm. and, and, and I'm so proud of you for that. Uh, but it seems to me that Antifa has been pretty quiet the last couple of months. What do you think is going on there? Well, I think that I think there's a couple of things going on. I think in my, my own personal belief is that, okay, yes, they're not coming out in big, huge numbers like they did during, in the summer, right? I mean, we saw them literally in the mm-hmm. thousands coming out on the streets in the summertime. Um, I think that the first thing is, is that they've, they've, I mean, you have people like Nancy Pelosi. I use her as an example because, it was for her to come out and actually speak out against Antifa when she did was huge because for us out here on the West coast, we couldn't get anybody to say anything bad about them at all. It was like, it was always the alt-right, the alt-right. And we were part of the alt-right, even though we, you know, it it was just as vicious. So, so I think um, they have, I mean, they're not, they don't have the support that they were getting. But that doesn't mean that I think that they're gone because they're not. Oh, no. They're definitely still out there. When we marched in San Francisco, they were, they, they, there were little groups of them all along our march that were following us. We had police. I mean, the, the San Francisco police did an amazing job that day. They literally walked with us the entire route. But we, I mean, they, they were there, um, but they, they're in smaller numbers. We've had, we haven't had any major like when we're out in big groups where the violence happens like we we are used to seeing in the larger groups, but we have I, had things and smaller things happen. We've had um, a lot more vandalism. I know a lot of my friends that are um, well known, so to speak, have had their cars completely vandalized. Um, I've had my car, my my tires have been slashed multiple times. 
Um, so, I mean, that are happening more often, but you're not hearing about it all the time because, you know, I mean, that's not making the news, right? I mean, that's, that, that's not big until, you know, there's thousands of people in the street. So I think that maybe they're just kind of quieting it down, but I, I definitely they're not away. They haven't gone away. Um, I know here in the Bay Area they're still meeting, and they're still, you know, making themselves known when we're in Berkeley. So um, they haven't gone away by any means. Okay, interesting. Um, go ahead, Cisco. You, you want to ask another one? Well, the other, the other, the other chronicle, and Lindsay, I know. This was to me was it was uh, comical, and I think to a lot of people it was when they accuse the all right uh, of being racist. But one of the individuals that was heading up one of the events was a you know a trans uh, a trans um, I think she she's a friend of yours she's a, a trans yeah. gender yeah, she's, she's a transgender and the other individual Doreen. You haven't heard this before. Uh, the other individual, he's half Japanese. Or and they were calling him is African American. Yeah, they were calling this the 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 racist all right. Yeah, we we I mean we had to sit down our rally. I mean, literally, you know, and and it I find out that the more and more I find out about the details surrounding that. And really, it really frustrates me because the city of San Francisco, from what I, I mean, they, we originally, they were all for us. They were going to literally give us all this, you know, kind of security and, and especially after Charlottesville and they were going to even bus us in because we had a permit for 300 people. They knew that a lot of people were coming down. And then literally like the last two or three days before the event, it was like, oh, no, um, your people are going to have to park. You know, we're not going to allow any parking at the event. You guys are going to have to park miles away. You're going to have to find your own way there. And by the way, there's three counter protests that you're going to have to walk through to get to your little spot. And it's like, and and they're not going to give us any kind of, of protection. Um, we felt like we were being put into a trap. And, you know, and also I think the final straw for us was when, you know, they started telling us that they were only going to allow, you know, about 50 of us in. And we knew that we had, you know, 300-plus people that wanted to come to this event. And it was like we also knew that there were multiple counter-protests going on all over the city that day. And to leave those people out and amongst all that, you know, well, it, it, it was just asking for, for violence. And um, it was really hard. It was really, really hard for us to cancel it because we had planned it for a long time, um, for months. I mean, that was something that was months in the making. And um, it was a whole weekend. It was a Saturday and Sunday thing. Um, and and for the media to lie, I mean, we, we it was unbelievable to all of us. I mean, Will, my friend Will Johnson got up there and, I mean, I, don't, I can't tell you how many times he had to say in the press conference, you know, my name is Will Johnson and I'm not a white supremacist. And he's an African-American. And then Joey Gibson is, you know, Japanese. And my friend Gabe Silva is, you know, he, he, he's Mexican, I 
you know. Um, I mean, and then my friend Amber, who was having the event the following day, which was in Berkeley, she's, you know, transgender. So it's like they're saying that, I mean, here they're calling us Nazi, racist, bigot, you know, homophobe, all this stuff. And the whole group of us that are putting this thing together is the antithesis of what they're calling us. And yet nobody, nobody would listen. I mean, it was like, I mean, it, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable what was happening that week, that, that, that whole, during that whole time. Um, and, you know, it, it still, it still blows my mind because I, 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 I mean, they, they flat out lied about us and it wasn't just the, the fake news, you know, you expect, you know, the fake news and, but it's like, even, and I, okay, I, I don't trust the politicians, especially here in California. I don't like them and I don't trust, trust most of them. But you'd think that after they saw, you know, pictures at the very least of the diversity of our group, that they would have backtracked and said, you know what, okay, wait a minute. Maybe maybe they're not racist. Maybe they're, you know, they're this, but they're not that. But they, would, they wouldn't even backtrack with that. Um, so... <laughs> I mean, the extent that these people will go to to lie and to get people to go out there and to cause violence because, I mean, calling us Nazis and white supremacists, there's only one thing that that's going to do, and that's only going to – it's going to anger people. It's going to make people angry. It's going to make people want right. to go out there and, and get right. the Nazis, right? So that's what that that's what that was all about, and that's really sad to me. The fact that that you know it really is. It's really sad. I think that was probably the biggest down. We we were all really bummed because you know we had really planned this this you know we had called it a day of unity and peace and free speech because that's what it was. That's what it was called from from the very beginning. And you know we invited everyone that wanted to come there to come. And it got twisted into this really disgusting, you know, vile thing that it wasn't even supposed to be. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it it was pretty amazing to see all of us up there and for us to be called racist, um, standing next to such a diverse uh, right. group. Right. Uh, well, Lindsay, is there any evidence that the these groups um, – you know, like Antifa and all that, that they're actually getting their funding from communist countries? Um, I do believe, I mean, I I could probably, like I can't tell you right now where to go, where to find it, but I know that there are ways to find where they're being funded. Now, with communist countries, that I can't say yes for sure, but I do know as far as, like, um, communist organizations, um, you can actually go to some of these, and I don't know if they're still there anymore because we were making a big deal about it for a while, telling people to go and look who's being funded. But you could go to, like, refusefascism.org. That's one of the ways that I found out that Bill Ayers is, is a sponsor and a funder of Refuse Fascism is because his name was Right Donator. Um Funny enough, I wasn't able to find that a while while later, but one of my friends took a screenshot of it, so we still have, like, a screenshot. But um, you can actually go to some of these sites and you can see who funds them. And, you know, like, you'll see uh, unions like the SEIU, 
um, you know, lots of different, you know, things that you and I wouldn't be surprised. It wouldn't shock, I think, any of us on here tonight um, but, of who's funding these people. So right, because because the um, hold on, Cisco, because because the um, weather underground um, did go to Cuba to get their funding, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and, and they did go to to other nations. And, and by the way, I just want to mention that the um, SDS Students for Democratic Society um, it actually developed from another group called the Student League for Industrial Democracy, and that was the youth branch of a socialist education organization known for the League for Industrial Democracy, and which descended from another group called the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, which was started way back in 1905. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, and then in wow. 1960... Yep. In 1960, the Students League for Industrial Democracy changed its name into the SDS, which is Students for Democratic Society, um, at the behest of its acting director, Ari Ornier, um, and because he said that industrial democracy sounded too narrow and too labor-oriented, and it made it more difficult because they had wanted the students the end game of, of communism is to recruit your child, you know, from yep. day one into yep. to make and, and to go to their government schools, which is what they are in the United States, and indoctrinate them into, into communist ideology. That's the end game there, is to elect more mm-hmm. communists in the whole thing. Um, but this one particular fella, uh, so what he did was, he, he was attending the um, University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, and he changed it to Students for Democratic Society. So, and then he came up with a um, um, manifesto, if you want to call it, and a charter and whatnot. And, and that's how you, you came from the ESDS. Just a little wow. history on them. Yeah. Wow. That was very um, good. That was very good. That was very good, uh, Dwayne. Quite a quite a history, but but um, Lindsay, I know I know you have mentioned that there is a division within the patriotic movement. What do you think is the cause of that, and and how do we how do we how how do you expand and grow this movement in order to make it a vital vital resource? <laughs> and, and can stand up to the Antifas and BLMs of the world. Wow. Um, well, for the division thing, I think that personally, my own personal thoughts on the division is that you have this group of people that are, which I call elites, right, people that are running stuff from the top, people that are career politicians that don't ever want to get out of what they're doing. And they're afraid because they see people like us that are pissed off and we're not going to take it no more type attitude, you know. And my feeling is is that they create division. I mean, we've watched my 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 Barack Obama created so much division, in my opinion, in his time as president when he could have really brought people together. So. 
my my own opinion is that the division really starts at the top and it trickles its way down. My way of dealing with it is I I I honestly when I hear someone bring people down, I I have to well first of all I ignore it. When I say ignore it, I mean in the sense that I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and start, you know, talking crap here and there because all that does is it just takes downward spiral and unraveling things. You got to lift people up. And everybody, what I tell people, and I've heard Joey tell people, and I've heard Will and people that are, you know, that are helping lead this movement is that we all have a place. We all have a place in this movement. We may not be, you know, and we're all. A lot of us, you know, we're all like type A personality, you know, because especially us that are out there, you know, in the street, so to speak. I mean, it takes a type of personality to go out there and do it. But we've got to learn to work together as a team. And I think a lot of us, at least, you know, around the West Coast, it's been absolutely amazing. They, we're a lot like a big family. Um, we realize here that the West Coast, I mean, we... <laughs> This is like we feel like do or die. You know, it's it's we're in a very critical time. It's too bad that we waited this long, but now we're gonna we're gonna stand up and take it back. Um, I think it's just you, you gotta you gotta focus on the positivity and less of the negativity. And I know there's a lot of negativity. It's hard. Um. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you got to realize it. And this is what I always look at. There's a bigger picture. You know, I, I, what do we want to leave for our children? I mean, I have children. I look at it. I know, I know now exactly why my dad did what he did. Like, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I always looked up to my dad, and I looked at him as a hero, and he, and he is. He's an absolute hero. But, you know, I don't think that I got it until I had kids and I and, and I'm seeing this go on around me and I'm seeing things crumble around me and I'm realizing that if I don't stand up to do something about it, whatever it may be, then what's what am I gonna leave for my children? So I I think that for me for me that's my biggest motivator. And I tell people too, you know, I know I know that not everybody can get out and go to rallies and go do this but again, everyone has their own little place, and and one of the big things that I think I saw looking from the outside in before I even joined this, you know, movement or whatever, is that I was able to work with my dad. My dad did a lot of tea party speaking, and he did a lot of more what I call, you know, um, white collar type of events. So he would wear a suit and a tie, and he'd have to get up and speak and. I did a lot of the behind-the-scenes things. You know, I would help him out, but I stayed behind the scenes. And and it was a different crowd. And I saw how important it was to bring the people that my dad worked with, what we're doing in the street, what, what the movement is doing. And I've been able to make connections, and we've been able to, to further the movement that way. Um, and I think that that's huge. I think we all have to realize that it is, I feel like we're we're at that critical point. We all have to work together. You know, you may not have to like the person, you know, but if we both have the same common goal, 
because I, I want to make sure that my kids are able to grow up in a free country. And I'm going to tell you, those of you, that, I mean, I, I know I don't think you guys, Cisco, you're in, in Texas, right? And, right. And, okay. But, I mean, I'm in California. California is what I call California. And, I mean, it really <laughs> is. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it truly is. It's, it, you can't, you can you can't even, I mean, you have to be careful of how you, you know, identify people in this state now. You can't, you know, I mean, you can't say, sir. My friend Amber, who's transgender, called someone sir because this person clearly looked like a sir. Okay, this person had a beard, looked like a, a man. But I guess that wasn't what this person identified as, and this person got all upset. And Amber herself is a transgender person, right? So she was even like, wow, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, I thought, you know, a beard. I mean, it's gotten absolutely, um, it's gotten to a ridiculous point. So I think um, we see that here on the left. I mean, and I'm sure in New York, I I, I haven't been in New York very much. I haven't been in lunch, but I'm in New York. Yep, over here, it's the same thing. (laughs) So, um, you have to I be mean, careful what you, what you say. Right. You know, you have to, I'm you not have to sure if it's like, a law, but it's getting to the yeah. point where it could be a law and, and somebody could take you up on charges if you accidentally call them the wrong thing. Yeah, we have well, a law here now. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, someone is getting was taken to court on Facebook because one person called the other person a snowflake. No, really? That's, that's how, um, that's where, we, this is where we are at today in our country. Wow. Okay. But, but uh, okay, I have to interrupt you because we have a caller, caller 612, okay. you're live on the air. Ah, yes, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just had a question, um, and I'm new to the show, and I just tuned in, so please forgive me. Uh, are you guys sympathetic towards the weather, the, the weather on the ground, or where, I mean, where are you guys politically? Uh, no, I'm with, me, uh, me personally, I'm with Students no. for a Better Future, and um, we, we uh, our philosophy is... Um, basically limited government and constitution. But we've done extensive study with uh, Students for Democratic Society and the SDS. Um, and, and we've done lots of investigations and research on them. And Lindsay is the daughter of, um, Lindsay Grantwall is our guest, and she's the daughter of Larry Grantwall, who was a former FBI agent who infiltrated the weather underground. Go ahead. Oh. So you have you have you have you have a famous famous uh, uh, young lady here. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Did you want to ask another one? Uh, okay. So area code six one two. Do you want to ask another question? Oh no, that was all. I was just curious to know because um, I'm trying to basically. Because you know on blog talks you got all these different persuasions politically of people, and I often 
fascinated by you know, trying to talk to people who would be far left or, you know, label themselves progressive. And I just try to pick their brain and just get an understanding of how, why they think the way they do and why they embrace mm-hmm. the ideas they do. So. Well, what, what, one of the reasons we invited uh, Vinny, we invited Lindsay, is because of she's a huge activist in California. And she is basically doing a lot of what her father did in, in basically infiltrating or being an activist. And he, what he did, infiltrating the weather underground, uh, that was so significant that we felt that most people today do not know the history, the past, that it's been trying to be repeated with groups like Antifa and BLM, sponsored by Bill Ayers or George Soros. So the left progressive is trying to do the same thing that was done 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Yep, yep. Uh, thanks for taking my call, yeah. guys. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll definitely be listening. Yeah, uh, you're <laughs> awesome. Uh, okay, sorry, Cisco, I cut you off. Well, I was going to touch on uh, Lindsay had brought up about California. I mean, California at the new year passed so many laws that really committed. I mean, the biggest one, I think, in my opinion, is the sanctuary label. Yes. And and the other one that really was disgusting was the fact that if you basically, they're protecting a lot of the criminals, the rapists and all this, Mm -hmm. and allowing them to basically get off and put them back on the streets. It's this is what sickening. this is what Jerry Brown has done, in the in the California legislature in Sacramento, is doing. And what's sickening to me is how the hell did he get elected again? Like, I mean, honestly, I grew up. My dad called him Mindim. Okay, like <laughs> I knew well enough not to. I mean, I I know well enough who not to vote for. And that guy, I. I I just it absolutely it amazes me. Um, well, this state's in a lot of trouble. We, but but I'm going to tell you this, okay? This is something that I've never I've I've been born and raised here in the Bay Area in California, very liberal area, and I'm going to tell you that this is the first time in my life that I've ever seen people from all different backgrounds, all different, you know genders, races, whatever you want to call it, that are really angry about the sanctuary state stuff. Um, it, it, I had people come out and march with us for the Cape Stanley Vigil that normally wouldn't march with us, you know, because they're not happy about that. Uh, there's a lot of people here that are really getting fed up. And, you know, it. it yes, you know, we, we've let things go in this state a long time, but um, there's people here. I mean, we, we have a lot of, of good candidates, I think. We have a lot of good people. That's another thing in this movement. Um, we, we a lot of us are using our platforms, you know, especially here in California to help with certain candidates and certain campaigns because we know how important the 2018 election is. Um, especially, so, you know, I, I think this movement has really opened the doors for a lot of, of things. It's, 
we've been able to network and connect with people on a level that I've never, I've been able to learn things. I, I never realized that how different, you know, how different yet the same things are down in Southern California than Northern California. We have a lot of the same things going on, but it's just labeled differently. And when you talk to people and, you know, find out all these different things, like, like basically how La Raza and what's going on with all that, I've learned so much just in the last, you know, nine months by traveling up and down the West Coast, going to rallies, talking to people, getting involved. I've met so many different candidates, you know, up and down the coast. And it's like, you know, and it's good because I'm becoming a lot more aware of who I know. You know, you meet these candidates, you're like, okay, I know this person right here. I don't, you know, I don't know about this person. I don't think that they're the right, you know, right one for the job. And I'm all about draining the swamp and getting rid of these career politicians. We need to get them the hell out of there, and we need to get people in there that are actually going to do what the constituents want them to do. Um, Otherwise, you're going to end up with California all over again. I mean, we are so misrepresented in so many different areas in California, and that's why you have people wanting to do the state of Jefferson, CalExit. People want to split the state, and there's a lot of people that are on board with that. Um, So... You know, and that's another thing that's, that, that's a movement here in California, and I'm sure you'll hear a lot about that because I know a lot of people are on board with the splitting of the state. Yeah. Yes, and I heard of that too. Uh, it's at, mm-hmm. They actually want to become another state called the Jefferson State. Yep, yep. state of Jefferson. Um, and we may be doing that here. Lindsay, I'm from the uh, United Socialist Republic of New Jersey. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> And we may be very well doing that over here. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know what? I mean, it's something I think that, you know, we've been fighting for that actually here in California for a long time. Um, it's something that's been brought up for, for many, many years. And I think now, I mean, we have a lot of support, people here in California. But uh, like I said, I've never seen. So, I mean, not here, not in California. I haven't seen that many people that are rallying behind. And people are just waking up, and they're and when, once they're waking up, it's like they realize that it's right. Idea. Right. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, okay, Lindsay, we gotta uh, we gotta wrap it up. Um, do, do you have a website? I I don't not yet. I'm just on Facebook right now. Um, I do I have a documentary. I have the uh, America Under Siege and FIFA by Trevor Lauder. Um, that they can go check that out on Dangerous Documentary. That's pretty cool. But right now I'm just on Facebook. Uh, okay, so uh, is the documentary completed? Because you can send me the link yeah. and I could send it out. Oh, absolutely, yes. I can um, send it to you. It's, and it's free. And, uh, people can go to the website and they can watch it and it's free. Awesome. Definitely, definitely. Uh, um, okay. whatever, whatever, whatever okay. we can yeah. do to expose, uh, uh, you know, expand your 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 uh, have more people follow you and get to know your mission. Right, so right, right. right. And if you connect too. with me on Facebook, you you will certainly get that. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Uh, okay, so, uh, folks, I gotta uh, you know. 
cut everybody because I want to play the tape. Um, and so uh, I want to also tell everybody um, to please stay tuned for us next week when we have a fellow by the name of Avery Pereira, if I say his name right. Yes. Yes. He's a uh, yes. Republican State Committee of New York, right, Cisco? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He'll be joining us next week. Um, and Lindsay, thank you for being a guest on our show, and we're definitely going to have you, you back. Thank you, Lindsay. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you, guys. It was fun. Yeah, and, oh, okay. and folks, please stay tuned uh, for about a second, and uh, we're going to play the tape with the uh, federal agent uh, Larry Grantswell coming up. Uh, so stay tuned with us in a little bit. Um, so everyone, uh, Ruben and everybody, want to just hang on and listen for a minute. Sure. Okay, it's like a 30-second delay. I brought up the subject of what's going to happen okay. after we take over the government. Uh, you know, we, we become responsible then for administrating, you know, 250 million people. And there was no answers. No one had given any thought to economics. How are you going to clothe and feed these people? The only thing that I could get was that they expected that the Cubans and the North Vietnamese and the Chinese and the Russians would all want to occupy different portions of the United States. They also believed that their immediate responsibility would be to protect against what they called the counter-revolution. And uh, they felt that this counter-revolution could best be guarded against by creating and establishing re-education centers in the Southwest uh, where we would take all the people who needed to be re-educated into the new way of thinking and teach them how things were going to be. I ask, well, what is going to happen to those people that we can't re-educate, that are die-hard cap capitalists? And the reply was that they'd have to be eliminated. And when I pursued this further, they estimated that they would have to eliminate 25 million people in these re-education centers. And when I say eliminate, I mean kill 25 million people. I want you to imagine sitting in a room with 25 people, most of which have graduate degrees from Columbia and other well-known educational centers, and hear them figuring out the logistics for the elimination of 25 million people. And they were dead serious. And I do have one more tape to play. In the 1960s, Bernadine Dorn was one of the leaders of the violent radical group known as the Weathermen. On December 3, 1980, in Chicago, Bernadine Dorn surrendered after 10 years in hiding. With her was another Weatherman, Bill Ayers, with whom she had been living. They held a press conference and stated their continued commitment to radical change. Resistance by every means necessary is happening and will continue to happen within the United States as well as around the world. And I remain committed to the struggle ahead. The man with Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, was one of the key members of the Weathermen during the 1960s. A man who knew Ayers well during those years was Larry Grathwall, 
a former member of the Weather Underground, which had developed close ties with the Cubans. Well, when, when the Cubans viewed the, the revolutionary struggle in the United States, they recognized the fact that the, that the left as it existed in 69 and 70 was not capable of, of overthrowing the government by itself. Consequently, they, they had hoped that the, that the group itself would be able to, to attack the system from within and provide assistance to the international movement, the international communist revolution. As a weatherman, if I became cut off from the main body of the, of the organization, the Weather Underground organization, I could make contact or reestablish contact by going to the Cuban embassy in Mexico or Canada and asking to, as an example, I wanted to get in touch with Bernadine Delgado. That was the code word, Delgado. And I would tell them that I'm Larry Delgado and I can be reached at such and such a phone number or at such and such an address. And the Cubans would make the connection and put me back in contact with the... How do you know this? I don't... How do you know, how do you know this information? Oh, Bill Ayers gave me those instructions in, it was either February or March of 1970 in Detroit. Detroit. The Cuban DGI is organized into seven departments and subdivided into geographic sections, the largest one being the United States section. It controls North American operations, including the UN, diplomatic posts, and radical groups. During the 1970s, hundreds of young Americans circumvented U.S. travel regulations to go to Cuba to harvest sugarcane and experience the Cuban Revolution firsthand. As a cover for the recruitment of the weathermen, the DGI organized the Venceremos Brigades. The organizers, tour guides, and hosts were officers of the DGI who used the occasion to train young American radicals. Cuban intelligence was well prepared for the Venceremos brigades when they arrived. Every time that the uh, Venceremos brigade contingent arrived in Cuba, all the uh, operational of the um, DGI had to drop what they were doing and go to work on the Venceremos brigade. We had to investigate, collect background to see who could be recruited what information could be obtained? Do you know of young Americans who were recruited in the brigade to work for the Cuban intelligence who came back to America and were secretly working for the Cubans? Yes, and they are still working. Still working for yeah. the Cubans in America? Yes, definitely. The brigade was established with the sole purpose of providing a cover for the weathermen to get their people to Cuba for training. And that that's why it existed. As a matter of fact, when our people came back off the first Venceremos Brigade, and, and I think it was February of 1970, the criticism that the uh, Cubans had made about the Venceremos Brigade indicated that the majority of people being sent there, they felt were useless. They really weren't helping them harvest sugarcane. But that it was justified in the sense that here was a means to train and politicize weathermen contacts and weathermen. Cuba somehow had the ability to uh, uh, bring out young people. 
at that time. Uh, the feeling of, of communism with a uh, mambo beat, or uh, somehow that uh, what was happening in Cuba was totally different than what was happening anyplace else in the world. This was the main reason of the interest showed by the Russians in trying to control the DGI, because the Cubans could work far more easily than the Soviets. Weren't the weather people aware that they were being used by the Soviets in some no. way? No, they, they viewed the Cubans as being the vanguard of the international communist revolution. Now, the vanguard essentially means that the Cubans are at the very tip of the spear. They're the leadership. Um, the Russians are being used by the Cubans. Now, this is the Weatherman's rationalization of this, this interaction between the Soviets and the Cubans. The Cubans said, you've got to become active. You've got to start doing things. And planning a national action to protest the beginning of the Chicago 8 trial and to commemorate the, the, the riots during the, the Democratic National Convention of 68 uh, and to protest the war in Vietnam is not action. Action requires that you confront the system violently. So when the weathermen got back from Cuba, they changed the national action to the days of rage. The days of rage in October 1969 was an attack on the city of Chicago and its police department. For four days, anti-war protesters, urged on by agitators of the weathermen, rioted in the streets, engaging in violent confrontations and pitched battles with the police. Quebec during the 1960s was rocked by terrorist bombings and confrontations between the police and French-Canadian separatist demonstrators supporting the FLQ. DGI contacts within revolutionary organizations like the FLQ had built an international terrorist ring. It was late March or early April of 1970. I was in Buffalo, New York. Uh, the FOCO there consisted of uh, five people. Bill Ayers and Naomi Jaffe were two of those people. Uh, Bill and uh, Naomi left and went to Canada. Where at in Canada, I don't know, to meet with members of the Quebec Liberation Front with the objective of establishing closer ties with them and, and cooperating in actions, if possible, uh, on both sides of the border. And they also received it was either two or three thousand dollars from the Quebec Liberation Front that had been sent from Cuba for the weathermen. There was an attempt in 1965 by a group of blacks who had gone to Cuba under my auspices to blow up the Statue of Liberty. The Black Liberation Front, which had been formed in Cuba in 1964, was the prime mover behind this plot. The bombing was prevented, however, when the police recovered the explosives from their hiding place in the Bronx. Amongst those arrested was Michel Duclos, a member of the French-Canadian separatist organization which provided the explosives to the Cuban-trained extremists. She pleaded guilty to illegally transporting dynamite. We know that uh, uh, the Weatherman Underground organization uh, went to Cuba and utilized the same kinds of techniques that we utilized. 
these people uh, did engage in, in, in direct bombing and killing uh, in the United States. So I fear it. And yet most of them haven't been heard from for a long, long time. That's right, but they're still out there. They're underground. And the question is, uh, over a long period of time, what does it take to activate them? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.